Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Divine love, I ask that during this season of Lent, the dust that is our lives would sparkle with the hope of life. Amen. And please be seated. Throughout this season of Lent, we're in a sermon series titled Stories of Disappointment, which is exploring the life of Moses as a way to lament our own experiences of disappointment, while being intentional to consider the potential gifts that disappointment affords. Our desire is that this series grows our capacity to hold both sorrow and hope in the midst of the sincere disappointment that we all encounter. So far, we've considered the disappointment of abandonment and the disappointment of inadequacy. This morning, we'll explore the disappointment of outcomes. The disappointment of outcomes. The basic definition for the word outcome is the way a thing turns out. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? And while the way a thing turns out does sound simple, we often have a fraught relationship with outcomes. Outcomes and results and goals, oh my. Outcomes, results, and goals, oh my. It's like an off-Broadway musical for the Wizard of Oz. It's just easy, right? Just, Just follow the yellow brick road. And the outcomes you want, the results you desire, the goals you plan, they are just over that next hill. I see some knowing smiles in the room. That's not how it goes. And by it, I mean life. That's not how life goes, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I love outcomes and results and goals. I love them. In the personality assessment, Myers and Briggs, there are four categories delineated by two letters in each category. Uh, The sets of letters reflect opposite ways of moving in the world. Depending on the assessment that you take, you may just be told that you're one letter instead of the other letter, but there are more helpful assessments that give you a number or a percentage. So, for example, the letters E and I. E stands for extrovert and I stands for introvert. And so, theoretically speaking, a person could be 75% extrovert and 25% introvert. I think this is really helpful because we humans are not very often just one of two extremes. We're more often a mixture. And this is pretty much true for me in the first three categories of the assessment. I'm a mixture of the two. Oh, but that final category, J and P, my goodness, J stands for judgers. Judgers tend to be organized and prepared. Judgers like to make and love to stick with plans. And then there's the P, which stands for perceivers. Perceivers prefer to keep their options open. Perceivers like to act spontaneously. Perceivers like to be flexible with making plans. On the JP spectrum, I am a 98% J. 
(laughs) I love to be organized and prepared. I love to make and stick with plans. Over time, I think I've grown. Like I can now get something done or go purchase something that's not on my list. I just need to write on my list so I can cross it off. (laughs) Uh, I can even change plans. I just really appreciate that we formulate a new plan with as many details as possible. (laughs) Now, whether you're a high J or not, the plans that we construct, the checklists we fashion, the dreams we hold, the commitments we make, the lives we desire, can very often create some kind of existential angst or sorrow or pain or despair when our lives do not go as we think they ought. In this morning's reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, we heard that Moses obeyed God. He did a good thing. He obeyed God. He went to Pharaoh and he demanded, let my people go. But instead of Pharaoh letting the people go, Pharaoh said, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Pharaoh then took away the provision of straw for making bricks, but he maintained the quota of production that the Israelites were supposed to meet day by day. And so after a very long day of work, the Israelite foreman went to Moses and said, you have made us a stench to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Oh, you just have to feel for Moses here, don't you? I mean, remembering back in the story, Moses didn't even want this job, right? He said, send somebody else. But God convinced him to do it. I mean, think about that. God convinced him to do it. And now he's done it. Pharaoh didn't let the people go. Instead, Pharaoh has made life much, much worse for the people, and their leaders have come to Moses yelling, you have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is not how it was supposed to go. This was not the plan. This is the opposite of the plan. And so we have this really human moment. Moses returns to God and says, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Why have you sent me in the first place? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has been trouble for our people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Out of all the plans to have go wrong, I'm not sure if there's one more fatal than the plans that we think God is calling us to make, the work God is calling us to do, to only have them blow up. You know, back in 2014, I returned from my sabbatical knowing, just like knowing in my gut that Pearl needed to become an affirming church. I felt it so deeply in my bones. I believed with all of my heart that this was God in me. God in me. That's more promising than a cashier's check. Take it to the bank, right? God in me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I knew it would be difficult, I knew some people would leave, I knew there would be some bumps. But then just under 12 months later, the majority of our community was gone, including some very dear family and friends that I'd shared my life with for over a decade. Horrible things had been said, terrible things had been done. Our finances were imploding. On a Sunday morning, there'd be like 12 people in this room and all we wanted to do was cry. And I was lying in fetal position on my bedroom floor, trembling, unable to eat or sleep, near absolute collapse. Why have you brought this trouble, God? 
Is this why you sent me? Ever since I got back to speak in your name of love, there has been nothing but pain and sorrow and brokenness. You have not rescued your people at all. Perhaps you've never been called by God to get a church to change. But I'm guessing some in this church have felt called by God to do something, right? Pursue that career, marry that person, make that life. But then the career, the marriage, the life blows up, right? Or perhaps it wasn't even a God thing. Like you just thought deeply about something and you ran your plans by the wisest people that you know and you put in all of the time and met all of the requirements that you were supposed to meet and then poof, the very thing that you were working toward, the very thing that you had earned, it just disappeared. From the transcendent and grand plans to the mundane and simple plans, we humans follow our hearts and it all turns sideways. We make a commitment and we're unable to keep it. We concoct a plan, and it just doesn't work out. Hello, disappointment. Hello, despair. Hello, angst and rage and sorrow and tender, raw ache. What are we to do with this? Once upon a time, a loving couple, perfectly matched, decided to have a child. They immediately became pregnant. It was so easy. Nine months flew by and the little girl came into the world with surprising ease. By three, she was speaking in full sentences. By 12, everyone spoke of how beautiful she was. By 15, she knew exactly what she wanted to do with her life. And because her parents were perfectly wealthy, they moved next door to the best architecture school in the country. Accepted through special exemptions at 16, she was hired, and at 20, by the most prestigious firm country, firm in the country, and by 25, she had become a partner. It's an incredible life. You may think that such a life meant that she had to give up so much, but she didn't. She had amazing friends, an amazing lover. She went to sleep every night perfectly content with her perfect life. And zipping forward, she had a perfect career and perfect kids and a perfect marriage and perfect friends and perfect health. And at the ripe age of 87, she felt that she had accomplished everything that she longed to accomplish. And with everyone's blessing and absolute understanding, she slipped into eternal slumber just as she had imagined it. The end. (laughs) Will you raise your hand if this story reflects your life? (laughs) For those listening online, nobody is raising their hand. (laughs) Of course not. Right? Because this isn't life. If we're being honest, it isn't even a good story. It's not. Good stories have inciting incidents. Good stories rise and fall. Good stories have risk and pain and death and delight and hope and surprise and soaring dreams and crushing realities, which is to say good stories reflect good lives. I'd like to say that again. Because in the midst of our dreams and hopes and desires and plans and goals, it's so easy to forget. But let us try not to. Good stories have inciting incidents. Good stories rise and fall. Good stories have risk and pain and death and delight and hope and surprise and soaring dreams and crushing realities. Which is to say good stories reflect good lives. 
And to be clear, I'm not intending to say that I desire inciting incidents or rising and falling or pain and death for anyone. And yet, if not one person in this world has a life similar to the make-believe story that I just told, then perhaps Moses' story of disappointing outcomes or my story of disappointing outcomes or your story of disappointing outcomes are a kind of invitation, an invitation out of our attempt at make-believe and into, so deeply into the stories that are unreservedly ours. For you see, your life reflects life. And it is a good story. Buddhism tells us that we cannot stop pain. Pain is a part of life. But according to Buddhism, we don't have to suffer. Suffering, says Buddhism, is attachment to our expectations the attachment that we have to the expectations that we desire. That's where the suffering occurs. And so perhaps it's possible that our experiences of disappointing outcomes are a kind of invitation, like an invitation out of the suffering that is our firm grip on the expectations that we have and an invitation into life itself. In a couple weeks, we'll be discussing Anne Lamott's book, Dusk, Night, Dawn. There's this incredible section during which she's bemoaning a a whole list of disappointments in her life that are unique to her particular life when her dear old seasoned friend says to her, you know, I live with a level of mess of what I can't control, of what I don't think I can bear, yet I love my life. I'm grateful for my kids and all of you my faith in goodness and love, and certain Jedi mind skills that come with getting older, (laughs) and the beauty of our backyard, and the mountain, and my dogs, and my cats. Just prior to the passage that we heard read in this morning's New Testament reading, Peter, the rock on whom Jesus said he'd build his church. Peter, the rock, declares to Jesus, Even if everyone abandons you, I won't. (laughs) Have you ever felt that firm in a commitment? Following this declaration, we heard these words. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter, she looked closely and said, You were that Nazarene. You were with that Nazarene, Jesus. And he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those around, this fellow is one of them, and he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I do not know this man that you are talking about. Talk about not meeting expectations. Following this, we read, at that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. But it's more than just breaking down and weeping. It is absolute overwhelm and utter disappointment in his own life. Peter the rock had been crushed into dust. Maybe it's the very dust that Job poured over his head when the life that he knew and loved disappeared in a matter of moments. Maybe it's the very dust that is our past lives, past dreams, past hopes, past expectations. 
Maybe it's the very dust smeared across our foreheads in the shape of a cross while we hear those ancient words on an Ash Wednesday service. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These lives are filled with dust. At the end of John's gospel, Peter, the rock dust, has left the community of Jesus and returned to fishing. In a boat, on the sea, Early in the morning, after a long night of catching nothing, a voice calls from the shore, throw your net on the other side of the boat. He listens, and suddenly the net is full. Realizing that it's the resurrected Jesus on the seashore, Peter tears off all of his clothes, and he swims to land on the shore beside the sea. As the sun slowly rises, Jesus makes him breakfast, and they share a morning meal. It's an incredible picture. And after eating, Jesus asks Peter, the rock dust, do you love me? Side note, in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, truth, and life. These seven I am statements. Life, light, door, shepherd, vine, resurrection, and life. Way, truth, and life. In other words, I am life, Jesus is saying in John. Life. With this emphasis in mind, life asks dust, do you love life? And dust replies, yes, life, you know I do. A second time, life asks dust, Do you love life? And dust replies, yes, life, you know I do. And a third time, life asks dust, do you love life? And dust is hurt. It replies adamantly, life, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then the story gets really strange. Life said to dust, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. After this, life said to dust, follow me. Dust then turned and saw the disciple whom life loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to life at the supper table and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When dust saw him, he said to life, Lord, what about him? And life said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. In these final verses between dust and life, dust is told that life will take it where it does not expect the dust to go. And dust looks over at some other dust and asks life, well, what about that dust? (laughs) What's going to happen to that? To which life says, what is that to you? You see, we could spend our whole lives trying to control it all. And we could spend our entire lives trying to figure out why our lives look like this while their lives look like that. All the while, life is taking the dust that is ours, scooping it up, giving it shape and breathing into it that which is us, here, now. In our stories of disappointment, I truly believe are a kind of invitation out, out of the attempt at make-believe and into, so deeply into, the stories that are unreservedly and uniquely and particularly our lives. And I also truly believe that it's a good story.
beloved church, rocks, at times crushed into dust. You have a shape that is uniquely yours. It's nobody else's. You have contours particular to you. Nobody else. Because you are a story that has never been told. And of course, yes, a story is with inciting incidents and a story it has rises and falls and a story is with risk and pain and death and delight and hope and soaring dreams and crushing realities, which is to say a truly good story. Full. Stuffed full of life that is finding expression in you and through you even this very day. And it is good, very, very good. Let us pray. Divine love, life itself. During this season of Lent, will you breathe anew into our dust-filled lives as we surrender what is to you? We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.